you will, turn in your Bibles to the 44th chapter of the book of Ezekiel as we continue our study through the Word. Now, last time you remember that we started to look at the at the vision that God had given to Ezekiel of this future temple. And, and so he brings him in through the eastern gate and then begins to measure it uh, all out. And, but the question is, what temple is this that uh, Ezekiel is given a vision uh, of? Now, we see that in the book of Revelation that John is also given a vision of a, a temple. And the question that the scholars have is, are these two temples the same temple or are they different temples? Now, what we do know is that there is going to be a present temple, a third temple. Now, you'll remember that the first temple was funded by David but built by Solomon, and that was the very first temple. And then that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians when they were taken into captivity. Now, you'll remember that they are going to be released out of captivity from Babylon. They're going to come back and they're going to rebuild that that temple. And then Herod is going to take and expand that temple. That's the temple. The second temple is the temple that Jesus Christ now came in the New Testament that we have. That's where he offered his sacrifices. And that is the temple that was there in our scriptures that we have in the New Testament. But you'll remember that Jesus made the prophetic declaration that not one of these stones is going to remain upon one another. And you remember Remember that in AD 70, Titus and the Roman army came in and they absolutely destroyed uh, that temple. And, and so then the, the, they were taken out of the land and, and the land has sat uh, without the Jews in it and, and without anybody in the land for some 2,000 years. And, and then you remember that there was the Ezekiel dry bones prophecy that we saw uh, back in chapter 37. And that's where God was saying that he is going to bring the nation of Israel back into the land once again, and we have seen the fulfillment of that. Now, we know that the Antichrist in the end days is going to come into the temple and that he is going to demand that he himself be worshipped, and that is the abomination that causes desolation. So we know that somewhere between now and the time that, that the Antichrist makes that declaration, that there is going to be a third temple that is going to be built. Now, the nation of Israel wants to rebuild that temple right now. They've got the funds for it. They're ready for it. They, they've just got the, the political problem of the fact that the two of the holiest Muslim mosques uh, sit on the Temple Mount itself. But if they can overcome that political problem, there is room on the Temple Mount for that third temple to be rebuilt. Now, we have got here in Ezekiel uh, this description and the measurements uh, uh, of uh, all. Um, and, and so the question is, is that the third temple? Now, here's what's interesting and a difference that we see. In Revelation, when John is given the vision of the temple to rebuild, he is told not to rebuild the court of the Gentiles. And so he says, that, turn that over to the Gentiles. Now, it is interesting that if 
Israel rebuilds their temple on the existing temple mount, that the mosques of the Muslims would actually be in what would be the court of the Gentiles. And so that leads scholars to believe that there could be a wall put, that there could be a, a peace treaty negotiated to be able to share the temple mount and to allow that temple to be rebuilt. Now, uh, we see that in Ezekiel, it's the dimensions of the court of the Gentile is given. And so we also see in Ezekiel uh, that the size of the temple and the expanse is much larger than could be built uh, in Jerusalem today on the, uh, the temple mount itself. And you remember that when Jesus Christ returns, that the Mount of Olives is going to split and there's cataclysmic changes to the geography that is going to take place. And, and so most scholars believe that what we're looking at now is the millennial kingdom, that during the tribulation period, the great tribulation period, that that third temple is going to be destroyed. And what we're looking at now is the temple that is going to exist during the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand year reign of Jesus Christ. And, and so as we had continued as we looked at the various different dimensions and the gates and all. Here in this 44th chapter, we see that the prince now is going to come through the eastern gate. Now, if you'll remember the, the graph that we had of the temple, and you will remember that we see the big gates, the three of them, on the east, that is to the right slide, the temple itself faces to the east, and then you have a south gate, a north gate, and remember that there is no west gate, uh, that we see that the back of the temple uh, abuts all the way to a structure that then connects to uh, the western wall of the, uh, of the perimeter of the temple, uh, and so we see that there is no western gate. Now, we had Ezekiel was brought in through that eastern gate and then he was brought around through the courtyards and then he was brought into the inner sanctuary, to the inner courtyard, the court of the priests, and then up to the sanctuary, uh, not allowed into the Holy of Holies, but uh, Ezekiel being a priest was allowed to go into the holy place uh, itself. And, and now we see that Ezekiel is going to be here in this chapter. He's going to start once again back at that eastern gate, right where he had started uh, in the very beginning of this vision here. And so that's where Ezekiel 44 picks up. So we begin here in this first verse, and then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces toward the east, but it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall be shut and it shall not be opened. And no man shall ever enter by it, because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, and therefore it shall be shut. And so... Here we see that uh, Ezekiel had been in the inner court uh, there of the temple, receiving instructions about the altar, and, uh, but now he's led out to the, the inner court and to the east gate of the outer court, and the east gate of the outer court, that big uh, structure there, now that gate was uh, shut. Now that gate opens uh, to the Mount of Olives, uh, and then uh, out down across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, and 
and then faces out towards the, uh, the, the, the Jordan River. Uh, and we see that now it's to remain shut because uh, the Lord has entered through it and no one else is going to be allowed to tread through the gate which, which God himself uh, has entered through. Now, some will believe that the golden gate that is in Jerusalem today that exists there, it's now sealed as the gate spoken of. But we see the dimensions of the golden gate do not correspond with Ezekiel's gate. And, and so we see that this would be still future. Verse 3, as for the prince, because he is the prince, he may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. And he shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. So only one person is going to be allowed to enter through the East Gate complex, and that is the, uh, the prince himself. Only the prince is allowed to sit in the gate and eat the sacrificial meal there. Uh, and so uh, the question is, who is this prince that now is going to be uh, allowed to come in and out of that eastern gate? Now, remember that this is during the millennium. If This is the millennial temple. And what does that mean? You'll remember that when we return with the Lord, uh, all of the saints, so the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, we all uh, return with the Lord now uh, to uh, operate the millennial kingdom. So many believe that it is King David, uh, that David is the prince that is spoken about here. We see that there are several times in Ezekiel and also elsewhere in Isaiah and Jeremiah uh, where we see that David is mentioned now as the future ruler over Israel. And so uh, some believe that. Others uh, believe that it might be Jesus uh, himself. Uh, but the fact that he is going to uh, offer a sin offering and has sons means that it is unlikely uh, that the prince that is talked about here could be Jesus. And, and so it says that he may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. So this once again gives us indication that the prince is not uh, the Messiah, yet this prince has special access to uh, the gate complex. He's allowed to eat in that gate, and that uh, refers to fellowship offerings with the uh, worshipers. In verse 4, and also he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple, and so I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. As Ezekiel now goes back into the inner court, he comes in by way of the, uh, the northern gate, so that is up to the top, uh, and so he comes into the court of the priests uh, there, the inner court, and as he comes into the inner court, it says that, behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And so here we see that Ezekiel sees the, the, the filling of the temple with the glory of the Lord and, and as promised that the temple would be his dwelling place forever. And so Ezekiel's reaction is the same as before and, and he just falls on his face. The, the glory of God 
the magnificence uh, of God. Uh, I hasn't seen, nor have we even imagined what the glory of God can even be like. But one day, you're not going to have to imagine it. Do you realize that if you're saved, that every single one of us is going to see the glory of God Almighty. And the things that Ezekiel is talking about, you're going to see it. You are going to be a part of the millennial kingdom. And so how exciting these things are, because these aren't things that are, you know, are going to happen to others. We are going to experience these things because this is the Lord's future and we're a part of the Lord's future. And so he tells us these things that we might get excited about these things. You know, the Bible says, you know, behold, look up for your redemption draws near that every single day we get closer and closer to the reality of these things taking place. And, and, and so Ezekiel just falls on his face before the, the glory of the Lord. Now, reminds me of Peter, James, and John when they're on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and and suddenly now his glory bursts forth and and the father's voice from the uh, from the heaven and they drop onto their face and and just like Ezekiel just drops onto his face before the uh, the glory of the Lord I love that song I can only imagine you know what it's going to be like when I stand before the Lord. Will you know? Will I fall to my knees? Will I sing hallelujahs while I be able to speak at all? And, and, and here we see in the in the presence of of the glory, even in the presence of the glory of angels, how how we tremble and we quake and and how fearful are we are at just the the revelation of angels and how often the, the angels always start off with do not be afraid and and then they continue to to minister but the the glory of god compared to the glory of gabriel or the glory of one of the angels here is the shekinah glory of god there in the temple, and Ezekiel just drops. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the ordinances of the house of the Lord and all its laws. And mark well who may enter the house and and all who go out from the sanctuary. And so God wanted Ezekiel to carefully note uh, now uh, those that are allowed and those that are excluded from the temple. Now, you'll remember in the, you know, when God gave the law to uh, Moses and it was only the priests that were allowed the access into that uh, area, the court of the, uh, of the priests. And then it was only the high priest that was allowed into the Holy of Holies. And, and, and men, they could only come so far. And, and so access to God. We see here that in this temple here, there is going to be access that also is going to be described. And so he says, mark well those that are allowed to come in and out from the sanctuary. In verse 6, now say to the rebellious, to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, 
Let us have no more of all your abominations. When you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary to defile it, my house. And when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, and then they broke my covenant because of all your abominations. And you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep charge of my sanctuary for you. So here you remember that you know, God had said what is clean and what is unclean, what is holy and what is profane. And, and it was the priest's responsibility to take care of the, uh, of the temple. And they were the ones that were given privilege of the access to God. But here now they had allowed anybody to come in. They had profaned. They had not honored the things that God had declared. In verse 9, thus says the Lord God, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. And so God speaks now to Ezekiel's own day and to the rebellious house of, uh, of Israel and in light of the glory that is going to come. Now, you'll remember how Ezekiel had seen the departure now of the glory of the Lord. But here he sees the future restoration of the glory of the Lord. And in light of the future presence of the Shekinah glory in God's temple, God now is speaking to his people to be faithful. He says, enough of your detestable practices, O house of Israel. And so God demanded holiness from his people. And God demanded obedience uh, to the covenant and to his uh, ordinances. And, and here we see that, uh, that the people had not obeyed God. They had not uh, honored God in their heart. And, and so we see how important holiness is, how serious sin is in our lives and and how over and over God is declaring be ye holy because I am holy and so if we want a fellowship with holiness then holiness needs to be a priority in our life and so here we see that holiness is important for, for God's people, but holiness is especially important if you want to serve God. And so here we see that, that those that were serving God had not kept his ordinances about allowing only the priests into the sanctuary, into the holy place. In verse 10, And the Levites who went far from me, when Israel went astray, who strayed away from me after their idols, they shall bear their iniquity, and they shall be ministers in my sanctuary as gatekeepers of the house, and ministers of the house. And they shall slay the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before them to minister to them, because they ministered to them before their idols." And caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity. Therefore, I have raised my hand in an oath against them, says the Lord God, that they shall bear their iniquity. And they shall not come near to me to minister to me as priest, 
nor come near any of my holy things, nor into the most holy place, but they shall bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. Nevertheless, I will make them keep charge of the temple for all its work and for all that has to be done in it. And so here we see now the duties of the Levites for the new temple are explained to Ezekiel. Because of their sinful practices now, the Levites, their position, they have been downgraded in the new temple from priests now to just ministers. They're going to be allowed to help with the chopping of the wood and the preparation and the cleaning and all of that, but no longer are they given the privilege uh, of being the the priests and so uh, they'll be gatekeepers and and all uh, but the tasks of the levites in solomon's temple was uh, much more extensive and 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 what we see over and over and over is that sin has consequences and oftentimes those are bitter consequences and we see the reality that in contrast to that, faithfulness is rewarded. And so God is full disclosure. We see the examples over and over and over and over in the scriptures of those two principles of how in faithfulness, God blesses faithfulness. God invites you into faithfulness, invites me into faithfulness too. And sin, as we have talked about, has consequences. Even if the consequence is just breaking fellowship with God, how severe is that for a believer when your fellowship with God has been broken? You know, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branch. And, and apart from me, you can do nothing. And so here we see that this consequence of their sin, of their idolatry as servants is, is that they now are no longer going to be able to serve them in the same capacity as they had. Verse 15, but the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer to me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. And they shall enter my sanctuary, and they shall come near my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge. Now, Zadok, the sons of Zadok, they are of the tribes of Levi, but they're from the family of Aaron. And so they had been faithful, and so here we see that now God is going to have the lineage of Zadok to be the priests. In verse 17, and it shall be whenever they enter the gates of the inner court that they shall put on linen garments. No wool shall come upon them while they minister within the gates of the inner court or within the house. So if you come to church and you're wearing wool, you're not allowed to serve, only in linen. Uh, that was the way that it was. That's the, uh, the priestly garments were in linen uh, and they weren't uh, in wool. Now, he, he says that uh, in verse 18, and they shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen trousers on their bodies and they shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. 
And so uh, that's why wool, because wool is so much warmer than uh, linen, that they were to wear linen in verse 19. And when they go out to the outer court, to the outer court, to the people, they shall take off their garments in which they have ministered, leave them in the holy chambers and put on other garments. And in their holy garments, they shall not sanctify the people. And so uh, here we see that uh, once again, God is giving the typologies and the descriptions uh, of uh, the dress of the priests. Now, we see that in the Mosaic law, in the first temple, that there also was given the command to wear linen. Verse 20, they shall neither shave their heads nor let their hair grow long, but they shall keep their hair well trimmed. And so here we see that shaving one's head or letting it go unkempt, there were both signs of mourning. And so the priests were not to be serving in a, a state of mourning, in a, in a sign of mourning. And, and so uh, they were commanded to keep themselves, keep their hair well trimmed. No priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. And they shall not take his wife, a widow or a divorced woman, but take virgins of the descendants of the house of Israel or widows of priests. And so here again, we see the command is there not to be drinking while they are serving the, uh, the Lord. And also there are restrictions on whom they are allowed to marry. And all of these actions are designated to promote uh, holiness, to uh, help the people see that there is a difference between what is holy and what is common. In verse 23, and they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. In controversy, they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. And they shall keep my laws and my statutes in all my appointed meetings and they shall hallow my Sabbaths. And, and so uh, here we see that both by instruction and also example, they are to teach uh, Israel the difference between a holy and unholy. They're also to serve as the judges uh, and to be able to uh, discern and have discernment uh, within the settling of matters. Verse 25 they shall not defile themselves by coming near a dead person only for father or mother, for son or daughter, for brother or unmarried sister may they defile themselves. And after he is cleansed, they shall count seven days for him. And on the day that he goes to the sanctuary to minister in the sanctuary, he must offer his sin offering in the inner court and says the Lord God. And so the priests are to avoid ritual defilement, uh, not going near a dead person. Now, there was an exception made for uh, close family members, but then afterwards they would need to offer their sin offering before re-entering the temple service. It shall be in regard to their inheritance that I am their inheritance. Don't you love that? I am their inheritance. And so God promises that, uh, that he is going to care for them. You shall give them no possession in Israel, for I am their possession. And they shall eat the grain offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. Every dedicated thing in Israel shall be theirs. 
and the best of all first fruits of any kind and every sacrifice of any kind from all your sacrifices shall be the priests. And also you shall give to the priests the first of your ground meal to cause a blessing to rest on your house. And the priests shall not eat anything bird or beast that died naturally or was torn by wild beasts. And so here the Lord wants to be their inheritance and and they'll have nothing on earth, but God is going to take care of them. In chapter 45, we see that there is now the, the land that is going to be this holy district. It says in verse 1, Moreover, when you divide the land by lot into inheritance, you shall set apart a district for the Lord, a holy section of the land. Its length shall be 25,000 cubits, and the width 10,000, and it shall be holy throughout its territory all around. And of this there shall be a square plot for the sanctuary, 500 by 500 rods with 50 cubits around it for an open space. And so this is the district you shall measure, 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 wide, and in it shall be the sanctuary, the most holy place. And it shall be a holy section of the land belonging to the priests, the ministers of the sanctuary, who come near to minister to the Lord, and it shall be a place for their houses and a holy place for the sanctuary. An area 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 wide shall belong to the Levites, the ministers of the temple, and they shall have 20 chambers as a possession. So in the division of the land, we see the portion of the land was to be sacred and 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 that was to be this strip that's about 8.3 miles long that's 25,000 cubits and about 6.6 miles wide Uh, that is uh, the 20,000 cubits and within that parcel is where this temple is going to sit now here we see that the geography of the city is going to have to change uh, in order for uh, this layout uh, here uh, to take place and Verse 6, you shall appoint as the property of the city an area 5,000 cubits wide and 25,000 long adjacent to the district of the holy section and it shall belong to the whole house of Israel. And so we see the city of Jerusalem itself is going to be the heritage of the nation, not any one particular tribe. And in verse 7, and the prince shall have a section on one side and the other of the holy district and the city's property and bordering on the holy district and the city's property, extending westward on the west side and eastward on the east side. And the length shall be side by side with one of the tribal portions from the west border to the east border. And the land shall be his possession in Israel. And my princes shall no more oppress my people, but they shall give the rest of the land to the house of Israel according to their tribes. And, uh, and so uh, the prince was previously mentioned here is the appointed uh, portion of uh, land. And verse 9, thus says the Lord God, enough, O princes of Israel, remove violence and plundering, execute justice and righteousness, and stop dispossessing my people, says the Lord God. 
You shall have honest scales, an honest ephah, an honest bath. The ephah in the bath shall be of the same measure, so that the bath contains one-tenth of a homer, and the ephah one-tenth of a homer, and their measure shall be according to the homer, and the shekel shall be twenty geras, twenty shekels, twenty-five shekels, and fifteen shekels shall be your mina. And so we see that they were, were using dishonest in scales. And here we see that the problem was greed, and greed in their heart. They were lusting for more. They were not content. And so they were cheating one another. And, and God calls us not to cheat. He calls us to honesty. The, the purpose behind cheating is, is lust, is the desire to be fulfilled by, uh, by circumstantial things, physical possessions and, and all. And so uh, here we see that Ezekiel is to define the measure of, uh, of weight. And, uh, and so uh, we see in verse 13, this is the offering which you shall offer. You shall give one-sixth of an ephah from a homer of wheat and one-sixth of an ephah from a homer of, of barley. And so Ezekiel now having you know, discussed the dishonest gains, uh, he, he returns back to the, uh, the discussion of the millennial where the future prince is going to use the just weights to now receive the uh, offering to the Lord. The ordinance concerning oil. The bath of oil is one-tenth of a bath from a core. A core is a omer of ten baths. From ten baths are a homer. You're going to be tested on this, so I hope you're taking notes on all of this uh, here. And one lamb shall be given from a flock of 200 from the rich pastures of Israel, and these shall be for grain offerings and burnt offerings and peace offerings. To make atonement for them, says the Lord God. And all the people of the land shall give this offering for the prince in Israel. And then it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feasts, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and all the appointed seasons of the house of Israel. And he shall prepare the sin offering, the grain offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering to make atonement for the house of Israel. And so the tithe was going to be required of the people to be given now to the prince, and then the prince was to use that to offer the offerings for the nation. In verse 18, thus says the Lord God, in the first month, on the first day of the month, you shall take a young bull without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary. And the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering and put it on the doorposts of the temple on the four corners of the ledge of the altar and on the gateposts of the gate of the inner court. And so you shall do on the seventh day of the month for everyone who has sinned unintentionally or in ignorance, and thus you shall make atonement for the temple. So we see that on the first day of the month, the sanctuary now is to be cleansed. And on the seventh day of the same month, the people now uh, are to be cleansed of the sins committed uh, unintentionally or in ignorance. Verse 21, in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you shall observe the Passover, a feast of seven days. Unleavened bread shall be eaten, and on that day the prince shall prepare for himself and for all the people of the land a bull for a sin offering. And on the seven days of the feast, he shall prepare a burnt offering to the Lord, seven bulls and seven rams without blemish daily for seven days, and a kid of the goats daily for a sin offering. 
And he shall prepare a grain offering of one ephah for each bull, and one ephah for each ram, together with a hen of oil for each ephah. And in the seventh month, on the fifteenth day of the month, at the feast, he shall do likewise for seven days according to the sin offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the oil. And, and so among the feasts that are going to be celebrated in Ezekiel's future temple is going to be the Passover. And, and that was God's redemption as, of Israel out of Egypt and, and points to the greater redemption through the work of Jesus on the cross. And, and that is what we have gathered tonight to commemorate is that sacrifice of Jesus there upon the cross. Let's have the ushers go ahead and distribute the elements as we enter into communion, the passing out now of those uh, elements. And as they are passed out, I'm going to ask you to hold them and we will take them all together. And, and so as we hold the elements, it's a time to just reflect, to Reflect on, uh, on the question as we come to enter into communion. Communion is that, that deep uh, fellowship with Christ, and, uh, friendship and connection, and our love and our devotion, our faithfulness. It's a time to, to hear the Lord ask you a question. And here is the question that the Lord is asking you tonight. How are we doing? How is our relationship going? And it's a time for us to, to talk to the Lord about the things that are going on in, in our lives and, and how the priority of, of Christ, which is to be central in our life and, and to examine that, to, to look at it and and the desire is that, that when we would leave here, that we would be washed and cleansed, that we would be forgiven, that we would be connected, that we would be committed, that we would be refocused, that uh, we would make sure that Christ eclipses everything that is in our life, that he eclipses every worry, every concern, that that he is enthroned firmly in first place above every interest, above every hobby, above uh, every issue or concern that, uh, that we have got. That we can bask in his presence on a daily basis. That, that we can be filled with the power of uh, our Lord, the risen power, the dunamis power in our lives to to be able to live victoriously, to walk victoriously, to holiness, to hate sin the way that God hates sin, and to do our best to avoid sin. And when we do sin, to quickly confess it, quickly be washed and cleansed and, and moving forward, that we're quick to say we're sorry, Communion is a time to say, I'm sorry, Lord. I am sorry, Lord. 
The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. But one day we will no longer battle, contend with this flesh, and one day we will be joined perfectly together for all eternity. With no more sin, no more broken fellowship, no more on again, off again, no more having our priorities right, only to slip with our priorities. And a time to just allow, to soak in the presence of the Lord, to bask in His infinite goodness. His infinite grace, His infinite kindness towards you, towards me. His infinite forgiveness. The glory of the Lord. How magnificent. How awesome that we get to be a part of. Communion is that time to celebrate his goodness. How can we begin to thank you, Jesus, for rescuing us from our sin? How can we begin to thank you for going to the cross? How can we begin to thank you for shedding your blood for you and for me? thank yous and words just don't seem enough to express what's in our heart as we recognize that you paid the price for my sin there on Calvary and, and for the joy that was set before you you endured the cross you looked through the pain you looked through the, the bruising of your body, the, the pounding of the cross upon your head, the, the piercing of your hand and, and feet. You looked through the agony of the cross to see our smiling faces on the other side. To know that, that in your sacrifice of your flesh there on Calvary that you were rescuing me. You were rescuing us. And so when you had that last meal with your disciples, as the cross was right before you, as it was time to head over to the uh, Mount of Olives, to where you would be betrayed, you, you told the disciples to, Remember me. Remember this sacrifice. Remember the brokenness of my body and the shedding of my blood for you. But that in all of that, you will be rescued. You will be saved. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Let's partake of the body of Christ.
And then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom. Let's partake of the cup. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, how you love us. Unchanging, unfathomable love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your willingness to come and to rescue us, to come and to save us. And Lord, as we come to celebrate your birth now, as we come to celebrate the incarnation when you departed from the presence of your father and you disrobed yourself of the glory that you had experienced from eternity past and, and you entered into our world in a manger, born Mary. And there you had to learn to walk, to crawl, to talk. You grew in every way, fully man and yet fully God. The condescension to enter into our world and yet you did it to demonstrate your great love that you have. That there was no cost too great to pay to rescue us. That that's how much you love us. And so Lord, may we respond to your love by loving you in return. May we respond by following after you, by picking up our cross daily, denying ourselves and, and loving others, allowing your love through us onto those that are around us. And, and may truly, we let our light so shine before the world that, that this Christmas, that people would see your love pouring out of your people onto this world around us. And Lord, may it begin with us. And so, Father, fill us afresh with your spirit. Prepare our hearts. Help us with our priorities, God empower us with your spirit and may we live for your glory and it's in jesus holy and precious name and all god's people said amen, amen and amen